Well, good morning and welcome. It's great to see everyone here today. So today is actually the second anniversary to the day of when former President Trump announced a national emergency due to the COVID pandemic, right? So think back to two years ago. You know, what were you feeling when you heard that announcement? What, how did it impact you? What were your perceptions? And now think back to today, you know, has, has much changed? What has changed, right? For sure, there's been lots and ups and downs over these last two years. There's been improvements and then setbacks and then improvements and then setbacks, right? And it's just so easy to be weary. Our personal family, we've experienced the loss of loved ones through COVID complications. My husband's job, our financial security has been directly impacted by COVID. I get weary, I'm tired of it. I'm drained, and I know many of you, many in our church today, right? You've been impacted financially. A lot of you have had babies at the start of COVID, and now they're little toddlers, and due to isolation and health precautions, like, we haven't even seen these kiddos. There's been health complications and mental health complications. Um, many of you have experienced the loss of loved ones. You, people I know have moved in the middle of COVID, and again, those isolations and those health precautions have just made it harder to really be connected. And after two years, right, we're weary, we're tired of it, we're drained. And for sure in the Exodus narrative, we see God's people groaning and crying out, how long, O Lord? And so this text that Amanda read today, it's God's deliverance from slavery, but it came after a long time. And although God's people, the Israelites, waited for a long time, it was never a surprise. It was never a matter of if there was going to be deliverance. It was just a matter of when. God's deliverance, God had told Abraham from way back in Genesis, if you can remember that when we went through Genesis, that, that Abraham's descendants would be enslaved, treated harshly in a foreign land, but that God would deliver them and bring them back. From the start of the Pentateuch, we know that the deliverance is coming. From the beginning of Exodus, Exodus 3, God clearly, explicitly tells the reader, tells Moses, I will deliver my people. And again and again throughout the plagues, God is clear that he will deliver them. But it comes after a long time. And the deliverance finally comes at the expense of a lamb's blood. And the alert reader of the Pentateuch, if you've been working through this Pentateuch series with us, the alert reader of the Pentateuch right, because we're supposed to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. The alert reader will remember the last time in the Pentateuch that there has been deliverance by the sacrificial blood of the lamb is with the testing of Abraham when he was going to sacrifice his firstborn son from Sarah, and there was a type of lamb in the thicket, and he sacrificed the lamb instead. And just a reminder, too, 
right? This section of Exodus and the book of Exodus, it's not an independent book that's supposed to be read on its own. The Exodus is part of a series, right? It's a five-volume series, one set. And as such, the Pentateuch, this story is part of a bigger story. And there's one compositional literary strategy to that Pentateuch, to that five-volume set. We're in book two, Exodus. And so there are key elements in the Pentateuch. There's messianic prophecies. There's messianic foreshadowing. There's narratives that pair together. And all those things together work together for that one overarching literary strategy. And that literary strategy is a messianic vision of the Pentateuch. And just to kind of take a sidebar here and make sure that we're all clear on the terms that I'm using, I'm sure, if, again, if you've been following along in this series, this will sound familiar. If you're new, if you're visiting, this may be new to you. So the word Messiah and Christ, those are synonyms of each other. They both can basically be translated as Savior. Just Messiah is Hebrew for Savior, and Christ is Greek for Savior. So I'll use those three terms, Messiah, Christ, Savior, pretty interchangeably. And so when I talk about right messianic vision or messianic prophecy, I'm talking about prophecies or visions that foretell, that prophesize Christ. And so scholars have pointed out, again, in this messianic vision of the Pentateuch, that there's these narrative pairings that pair together. So Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 22, the last time we saw deliverance through the sacrificial lamb, those pair together. So if you remember when George started this series, Genesis 3.15, the reader learns that there is a promised Messiah who will be a wounded son of Eve but who will crush the head of the serpent, who will destroy sin and the curse of sin. And as the messianic light shines through that Genesis 3.15, it hits Genesis 22. The next time we see a somewhat, but not fully, wounded son, Isaac. Isaac is laid out on the wood of the burnt offering, and his dad, Abraham, <laughs> has the knife ready and the fire ready, right? Again, George preached on this, like that would have wounded Isaac. And there's things in the text that show that. We see this somewhat but not fully wounded firstborn son delivered by the sacrificial blood of a lamb, right? There was a ram in the thicket and that lamb takes the place and delivers the firstborn son. And so again, this overall messianic view we see the light shining through Genesis 3.15, hitting onto this story of Genesis 22, and then it bounces onto today's narrative, Exodus 12, the Passover, where we again see a somewhat wounded firstborn son delivered by the sacrificial blood of a lamb, Israel being God's firstborn, the Passover lamb delivering them. And so with this messianic vision of the Pentateuch that this Passover fits into today, 
right? There's light that is shining and bouncing into specific parts of the Pentateuch, and it's pointing the reader to understand that promised Messiah, the plan of the coming promised Messiah who would deliver mankind from slavery to sin, from the curse of sin. And so the Passover, as part of this messianic vision, it teaches us about the coming promised Messiah that we've been looking for since the beginning, since Genesis 3.15. It's not just cool parallels to pull out. It's a literary strategy that the people of God were to meditate on and know. And so as the messianic light hits this Passover story, right, it reflects forward and teaches us what we should know about the coming promised Messiah. It teaches us that the coming promised Messiah is going to be a type of Passover lamb who brings deliverance, that he's going to be a greater and final Passover lamb who brings greater and final deliverance from sin and the curse of sin. The Passover again, right? It's this long-awaited deliverance, 430 years of slavery and harsh treatment and the murder of their children. And it says at the end of this chapter that Amanda read, at the end of Exodus 12, that it was a night of watching. Because the deliverance took so long, it was a night of watching. But the Passover, with its watching for deliverance, also foreshadows for us as the reader to keep watching for the promised Messiah, right? The author states that God's people are delivered from slavery, but it's a night of watching. As they're delivered, they're supposed to keep watching for that promised Messiah. So this Passover section, right, again, we've got to understand it in light of the overall Pentateuch because it's part of that. But we also do well to kind of just appreciate it for the narrative it is. We want to look at it against the backdrop of this messianic vision of the Pentateuch, but we also want to look at just the narrative itself. And so it makes sense for us to ask, what were the Israelites delivered for? Like, I don't want to be too dark here, children in the room, but no, it's not that dark. Um, The people who are delivered out of slavery they never make it to the promised land, right? Like they spend the rest of their life in the wilderness and die in the wilderness. They weren't delivered to get the promised land. God's people were delivered to worship. It says in Exodus 3 clearly that God says right at the beginning, he tells Moses, I'm going to deliver you so that my people can worship me at Mount Sinai. God's people were delivered to worship him. And so this deliverance, this final deliverance from slavery at the expense of a lamb is the defining story for the Israelites. It was a story that was supposed to be read and reread again and again in Israel. It was a festival that they were supposed to celebrate every year. The Passover was the powerful and compelling center 
of Israel's defining memory of faith. And all the, it, that's evidenced by how all the later scriptures are always referring back to the Passover. Major prophets, Isaiah, he's referring back to the Passover. Minor prophets, Amos, referring back to the Passover. Psalms, book of Psalms, always referring back to this defining narrative, the Passover. The first century believers, the apostles, so often when they preached their gospel proclamation would refer back to parts of the Exodus. It was the defining narrative for this community of faith. As theologian Walt Brueggemann states, this narrative has become the defining account of faith whereby Israel is understood as the beloved, chosen community of Yahweh and the object of Yahweh's peculiar and decisive intervention in public events. And moreover, the Passover and its celebration was supposed to be an intentional way to teach the children, to teach the youth about Yahweh, right? Yahweh is Hebrew for God, the great I am. It was to be the intentional way to instruct the children in this counter world of Yahweh, of a society of faith, a community of faith. Throughout the Pentateuch, there's these instructions on how to celebrate the Pentateuch or the Passover and its feast. In Exodus 12, if you read all of it, I had to cut some of it out. In the middle of the narrative, before the angel of death ever actually passes over, before the narrative ends, the narrative's interrupted with how to celebrate the coming feast. That's how crucial it was. That's how intentional it was for this community of faith. Too often we as modern Christians, right, we'll just skip over those details. But the world for most of the history of the Jew has been hostile. The world ancient, contemporary, pretty characteristically, has had little patience for Jews or for the God of Jews. And you know, we, we Western Christians for the last thousand years, right, we, we can have society's approval, society's affirmation of how we see the Bible as an authority. I don't know if they still do this, but still in recent history, right, you go to court, you put your hand in the Bible. There's overall a support for us and how we view the authority of the Bible. But for the Jews, again, the ancient and contemporary world, right? The Jews have consistently lived in societies, in worlds that were hostile to them. And a defining narrative of their identity, of their community, was important. And as our society, as we live in an emerging society that is increasingly postmodern and increasingly more hostile to our Christian faith, I think we stop taking for granted and we start realizing more how important a defining narrative for our identity, for our com as a community of faith is. You know, increasingly today, the church needs to rethink and act differently to maintain our distinct identity. 
Increasingly, the church has to rethink how to nurture and guide our children and our youth into an understanding of the Christian faith, into a counterworld of Yahweh that's probably been taken for granted in recent generations. And this Passover narrative, right, it's been a way to center adults and to teach children on the world of Yahweh, on an understanding of Yahweh. So the Passover and its deliverance from slavery through the sacrifice of the lamb has been this defining narrative for the Israelites as they've watched for a promised Messiah. But for us today, like, should it be our, should this be our defining narrative? You know, if we need a, a story, why do we care about this story? Right? We could pick another story in the Old Testament. Why this? If we feel like we need to pick something from the Old Testament, maybe for longevity's sake or whatever, you know, why don't we pick another one? Why not? How about David and Goliath, right? That's really inspirational. Why don't we pick that one? Why is it that the apostles, when they would preach their gospel presentation, would refer back to the Exodus? You know, it doesn't make any sense for us to use any ancient Hebrew story as our story, as our defining narrative, unless Jesus is that perfect and final Passover lamb who brings the more perfect and final deliverance from slavery to sin and crushes the curse of the sin. You know, like the Israelites who were delivered from slavery but watched for the coming Messiah, were delivered from slavery to sin, but we keep watching for the promised Messiah's return, right? For Jesus' return. Although we know we have deliverance from sin, we have forgiveness for sin today, we also know, right, that as long as we dwell in this earthly tent, as long as we walk around in this body of flesh that's corruptible and has sinful tendencies, we won't ever fully overcome sin Though we will increasingly, but we won't fully overcome sin until Christ's second coming. So today, like the Israelites, right? We remember Christ as the perfect Passover lamb who has already delivered us from the consequences of sin, has given us the forgiveness of sins, but we watch for Christ's return like George prayed at the end of his prayer, right? Where Christ will be exalted as the king of kings, everything will be set right, and there will be the great wedding feast with the lamb, like it talks about in Revelation. It's like, that's what we got to keep looking for as a community of faith. That's why this is our defining narrative too. And I might nerd out here on you for just a minute, um, but I thought it was kind of cool. So if you look in your bulletin, if you're online, I believe Lawrence attached this. So uh, Lawrence printed this up for me. I thought it was cool because George just taught this in India, and it goes along with what we're teaching, what we're looking at today in the sermon. And I thought, like, well, that's exciting because it attaches 
to the work that TCC is doing in India through George, and it attaches us to our brothers and sisters in India. I'm not going to have time to go through all of this. If you enjoy this, if you get excited by it, maybe this is a plug for taking the message of the Bible class. But if you look at this diagram, the arrows that you see along the top and the bottom are seams. They're connections between the different sections of the Bible. And if you look at that top left arrow above where it says the law, which also means the Pentateuch, you see a call for the reader to look for a child who, again, a child who will be the wounded son of Eve and crush the head of the serpent. And then if you look at the end of the law, that next arrow, we further learn that the reader is to look for the promised Savior who will be a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. And then if you go down and look at that first bottom arrow on the left, at the end of the law, the reader is supposed to look back and meditate on the law of God. So at the end of the law, at the end of the Pentateuch, the reader is to look ahead and watch for the promised Messiah, who they know will be a son who is greater than Moses, and while they wait and watch, they are to meditate on the law of God. And then if you look at this diagram, you look at the New Testament, we do the same things today. Likewise, the reader is called to watch for the promised Messiah. We're looking for Jesus, for Jesus' second return. And as we wait and watch that bottom arrow, we are to wait well by reading and meditating on those New Testament prophecies and scriptures. So today, we wait and we watch for Christ's return. And yeah, sometimes we're weary and we're drained too. We're waiting for that coming Messiah's Passover deliverance. And Christ's deliverance as our Passover lamb defines us as a community. It centers us on the world of Yahweh, the counter world of Yahweh. But how do we today... As Christians, how do we let this story of Christ as our perfect Passover lamb who's delivered us from slavery to sin, how do we let that be our defining story? How do we let this narrative define us? How do we let it center us as a community of faith? How do we pass it on and instruct our children? How do we teach them about Yahweh in this counterworld of faith where Yahweh lives and reigns? You know, Titus 2 talks about that there is a way to live that is in accord with sound doctrine. It goes on to say that there is a way to live that adorns the gospel. And it discusses community order, how older men and older women and younger women and younger men ought to behave, and then it literally says, so that the word of God will not be reviled. There is a way to live that aligns with sound doctrine. First uh, Timothy kind of builds on it. It says, there is a way the household of God ought to act as the family of God to protect and communicate the truth of the gospel in those encyclical epistles, Colossians and Ephesians, that we study so often in house church, right? Those were written to new believers throughout Asia. 
to instruct them in how to order their households and how to conduct themselves in their places of employment. And this will be, again, familiar for many of you. I'm going to try to go fast, but maybe embellish a little bit here. Those household orders and how to act in your places of employment. The household order starts with, wives, submit to your husband's leadership. It doesn't mean, women, <laughs> that you submit to every man in the church. You submit to your husband. It doesn't mean, women, that you don't have giftings and callings. I had um, a sort of epiphany this week. Um, I was watching this webinar, and it was on biblical womanhood. And I realized, I am not a preacher and teacher of the Bible, despite the fact that I'm a woman. I'm a preacher and a teacher of the Bible because I am a woman. I am blessed and fortunate that the leadership in this church has recognized that male, right, and female together more fully portray the image of God, like it says in Genesis 1.26. That's why in our house churches, we have male and female leadership. But the fact that I have giftings as a woman, and that God has called me to use, it doesn't mean I don't also have a role as a wife, and that my husband doesn't have a role as a husband, and that I submit to his vision. And then husbands, you are to love your wives and lay down your life as Christ does for the church. I mean, if you just focus on that and do that well, husbands, you will have lived a good life. Children, you are called to respect your parents. Specifically in Ephesians, it says to obey and honor them so that it will go well with you. Parents, you are told to raise your children in the love and discipline of the Lord. And maybe that part, right, aligns the most with the aspect of the Passover feast that it was supposed to train up the children. We've talked about in house church leaders meetings that maybe one way we kind of incorporate the messianic vision of the Passover is by reading it periodically when we celebrate the Lord's Supper in house church. You know, as we incorporate our children into house church, as we incorporate them into Sunday morning worship, those are ways for them to learn Yahweh and this counter world of faith of Yahweh. But parents, to be clear, it is your directive to raise up your children in the Lord. It is not the elders. It is not your house church leaders. It is not church staff. It is the parents' responsibility to raise up their children in the Lord. In church community, it is your responsibility to support parents in this calling of helping them to raise up their children in the Lord, right? That's why we offer like the youth or the parenting forums, right? That'll be coming up just given lots of plugs here um, for different things. So youth for, or parenting forum will be March 26th, right? We have youth gatherings like this Sunday and last Sunday, right? Be intentional. Take advantage of these opportunities to teach your children that they are part of the family of God, that they are part of something bigger than just your nuclear family. They are part of a community of faith that identifies them. And maybe just one more sidebar with that. So parents, you have this responsibility. But don't overdo this responsibility 
You don't have control of your children's salvation. That is not your responsibility. That is God's. So, right, sometimes parents can be really enthusiastic, and they'll put things on their shoulder that is not theirs to do. You can't ever make somebody become a believer. You have a responsibility, but it's out of your control. Their salvation is not your responsibility. But then on the other hand, you can't like skirt past your responsibility or try to farm it out to the church or private schools or whatever. Like there's a balanced responsibility you have and the church community should be supporting you in that calling. And then for employees, right? Employees are to work wholeheartedly for their bosses and employers are to treat their workers with justice and fairness. If we could live by these biblical principles, right? How to be a community of faith, how to order our households, how to act in our places of employment, everyday common things that we do. If we could live by these biblical principles, we would be a distinctive community of faith. We would be a distinctive community where outsiders, people without the hope of the gospel, will be asking questions. What is different about you? Right? That's what it says at the end of Colossians 4, where it talks about be ready in season and out to share the hope you have in you. But I want to be clear on something else. We have to, like it is critical, as we try to apply and live by these community texts, these household texts, this employment, it has to be attached to the worship of the Passover lamb. Like you could follow these things as rules and people do, and you will just be legalistic, judgmental, and condescending, and nobody's going to see the hope of the gospel in you. Nobody's going to be asking you about the hope within you because you don't. You're just being legalistic. You're following rules to feel good about yourself rather than worshiping the lamb who has delivered you from sin. And then back on the other hand, we can't, though, just like live in these high and lofty principles that never hit the day-to-day specifics. We can't just be talking about worship in the abstract. Like it has to hit the day-to-day specifics. It has to hit where the rubber hits the road. Otherwise, you're going to be easily tossed by the trials of this world, tossed to and fro and unstable and shifting from the hope of the Passover lamb, of deliverance, of the gospel. So right living and right believing is worship. Right? Worship is gathering together like this for corporate prayer and corporate worship where we sing and we praise God together. That is for sure worship. But worship is also our day-to-day choices in life, being a living sacrifice where we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is worship, like it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And like the Israelites, we were delivered from sin to worship. To worship is to live one's life wholeheartedly before the Lord in the awe and fear of the Lord. You know, by God's grace, I see it again and again in my life, in the lives of others in our church who are trying to live wholeheartedly before the Lord. 
their lives aren't perfect. There's messy things, but as they keep increasingly pursuing the Lord with wholeheartedness, their lives look different. And people notice and they ask, right? It's worship. It's a specific biblical calling as we worship and as we wait for the return, Christ's return. So let me close in prayer. Lord God, we are so thankful that you have indeed delivered us from the consequences of sin, that you have given us forgiveness of sin, that you have given us your indwelling spirit to indwell each of us as individuals and to indwell us as a community so that together as a community, we can increasingly live by faith, live with wholeheartedness in the awe and fear of you and how you have loved us, how you have chosen us, how we are your beloved through faith in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would strengthen us as individuals, as households, as community, and together with other local churches in the area so that we can be a distinctive people of God, that we can worship, and that others will see in word and deed the hope of the gospel, the hope of your son, Jesus Christ. We are so thankful that you have redeemed us, included us as your family. We look forward to what you will do in our lives, and we just pray all these things through our advocate, Jesus Christ. Amen.